Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode six of the Early Education Show. It's really great to be back with you. We've got a great episode lined up. We've got a couple of topics ready for discussion. We'll have our news of the week and then some recommendations at the end of the show uh, for listening or reading or watching from the uh, vast field of early childhood. Um, but we can start with I am Liam McNicholas. I'm Lisa Bryant. And I am Leanne Gibbs. Hi, everyone. It's really great to be back with you too. So before we get cracking into news of the week, I want to give a bit of a uh, sort of broadcast or update for the for the podcast for next week. Um, as probably most people in the sector know, next week is the Early Childhood Australia National Conference, which is up in Darwin. Uh, Leanne and I are not uh, blessed by the fates enough to attend, but Lisa, you will be up there. Are you looking forward to it? I'm so looking forward to it. Mostly because it means I get out of Sydney for four days. But no, no, no. I'm really looking forward to networking and um, hearing all the great presentations, etc. Well, I think Leanne and I are both make not that we're jealous or bitter or angry at all, but we uh, <laughs> have both committed that you will work while you're up there. So you will be the early education shows on the ground reporter for Early Childhood Australia National Conference. So. For next week, we're oh, going to be... wow. I know, Lisa, you should be so very excited. You, you're up there I'm, doing all the work. I, I'm, I'm excited about the trust that you've both placed in me. <laughs> I think it might but test... We could, um, we could also direct Lisa to particular presentations as oh. well. We could put a program up for her. What do you think? Oh. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, but what will be happening next week, so... Uh, it, assuming everything works technically and as sort of you know semi-amateur podcasters we're still working on this week to week but what we're very hopeful will happen next week instead of a regular show on Friday um, we're actually going to be getting daily updates for the four days of the conference from Lisa um, we they, they might take different forms they'll probably be sort of 10-15 minutes each day um, they might be interviews with participants there or uh, Lisa might call into us and we'll sort of record a quick chat on Lisa's experiences on the day but um, yeah we're a bit excited to have some on the ground reporting from Early Childhood Australia so um, is there particular things you're looking forward to up there Lisa? being in a hot place. No, no. Um, look, I think some of the keynote speakers will be really, really interesting. But I also just, you know, one of the things I like at ECA is going to some of those small sessions and hearing the really interesting things that individual services are doing that may not have come to public prominence before. But you go to some of those small sessions and someone will just tell you about something that they're doing at their service and you go, wow, that's really quite innovative. So it should be fun next week. So like we said, no sort of regular episode on Friday, but from uh, Wednesday, which I think is the first day, make sure you're refreshing your podcast feed uh, each night because I'll... What we'll try and do is um, either have a chat or Lisa will, you know, send us some stuff. We'll edit it and try and chuck it up each day. So, um, yeah, it's a sort of early childhood Australia's big event for the year. So uh, look forward to that next week. But we will kick right on. Uh, I'm not going to make any promises about runtime. I've been proved wrong every single week so far. Uh, we're going to kick off with the news of the week, which is coming from you. Lisa, what have you got for us? Look, this one is both horrible and, and at the same time slightly... Um bizarre. It's um, about a childcare centre in Adelaide, in North Adelaide, that was broken into. And during the break-in, and the break-in was by 10-year-old children, five 10-year-old children, uh, the services um, was 
trashed in the way that vandalism at childcare centres often happens. So they trashed walls and computers and they urinated and they defecated um, throughout the centre. Obviously, um, for the service staff, for the director, it was a, a tragic, you know, like a horrible thing to have happened to find, to walk in on and find that. And obviously for the children at the service, it's absolutely horrible as well. But the worst part was that they mutilated the goldfish that the service had. So they cut up the goldfish with scissors and they also stole the service's budgie. Now, why would I nominate something like that for News of the Week? My question exactly, but go on. <laughs> because it's really common. It's not, you know, like obviously not all break-ins are done by 10-year-olds and not all break-ins have that kind of horror story attached to it. But I follow all the news that's happening in childcare on a day-to-day basis across Australia and rarely, you know, a weekend would pass where a childcare centre isn't broken into somewhere in Australia. And I think that we have to, you know, look at what that does to directors and staff and to children who find their places violated in that way and work out, you know, why, like... Everybody probably thinks that it was just their centre that it has happened to, but some services it happens to, like, multiple times. And I don't think a lot of people think about it, you know, maybe, you know, the big insurance companies realise how often it happens because they're having to pay out for these things. But I don't know if a lot of other people think about how often services are the target of these kind of vandalism attacks. So... That's why I put it up there for today. It is really interesting. Actually, I've experienced that in centres I've worked in. Um, yeah, I don't know what they think they're going to find. There's never any money there. There's usually the barest minimum of fancy, fun technology in an early childhood centre. So, yeah, that's bizarre. I have no answer. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you for another lovely news of the week as well, as, as usual, Lisa. But the, the goldfish with the scissors just got me in that article. I, don't really, you know, I, can't, I can't think about it. It's too horrible. Um, Luckily, but, people did donate a, a new fish tank to the service. There was a bit of a nice end to the story, yeah. The community yeah. sort of rallied around them, which um, I think is kind of the flip side of those things that usually happens as well. The community normally gets behind them. We might move on to our first main topic for the night, though, and we're going to be talking about, we sort of, um, in my, I always have to title these podcasts, I need to come up with a relatively snappy headline, and we sort of call it Push Down Curriculum, which is a bit of a catch-all term for, I guess, the sort of steady creep of formalised education creeping into that birth-to-five space. Um, It's sort of come, I guess, from a few media articles and a couple of different things which we might touch on during the chat. Um, And it probably also comes from the discussion we had, I think, two episodes ago about the national evidence base. So it's this sort of um, realisation that we need more uh, evidence of um, the success of programs in early childhood space. But what people are taking from that, in some cases, maybe, well, we need to be more formal and strict about things rather than we need to look at what actually works in that birth to five space. But Le- uh, Leanne, I might turn to you first. I think you sort of raised the, the topic um, with Lisa and I in the course of last week first. What's, you know, what's your take on it at the moment? Well, I, I raised the topic because this was, the, this was front page in Sydney, uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald on Sunday or the Sun, Sun Herald. And it was about um, people who are spending a lot of money 
in special programs to have their children get ready for school. And it's really, I guess this is this um, sort of push down curriculum that we're all very fearful of. And they're prepared to spend extraordinary amounts of money on uh, increasing in inverted um, inverted quotation marks, oh, no, whatever it is, they're, obviously I need to go to one of these push-down curriculum uh, sessions, um, <laughs> increasing their children's intelligence and readiness for school. And it's just horrific to look at, first of all, how much money people are spending when really they should just be spending it on high-quality early childhood education as opposed to sessions. And then secondly, how that sets children up for their school readiness and what the expectations are. And it feeds into all of those fears that we have about testing and about children being, you know, able to read or must need to read before they actually go to school. And I just, all I wanted to just put out there was, no, please, parents, stop. It's a really, really bad idea. Yeah, I think uh, the interesting thing for me about this is the amount that people have to spend to send their child to um, early childhood education, then to spend more on additional programs for school readiness particularly when we know that, you know, what the science tells us, and I'll be the boring person quoting the, the science, is that the things that these programs are teaching aren't the important things for schools. So if you're obsessed with school readiness, the things you need to be thinking about are self-regulation and executive function and all those skills. These aren't the sort of things these, these programs are teaching. So uh, I think it's good marketing, and I think it's these organisations realising it's a bit of an untapped market. And I think, too, there's really um, this push. You're getting all... There's, I think of it as three kind of things. One is this political imperative around all of the testing. So people are getting into that early, right, and they're, they're really concerned that their children won't do well in their kindergarten entry test or their Year 3 NAPLAN or their Year 5 NAPLAN or whatever, or the HSC. So they think they're going to get a head start when the child is three. So there's this sort of political imperative there. The second is, and I think in a way we've got some responsibility in the sector for yes, the... Yes, yes, yes. Say the same, Leanne. <laughs> so for the curriculum disputes, I don't know whether that was what you were thinking, Lisa, but it's this, um, and, and there's an element as well about how we promote uh, early childhood education and how we deliver that message to families. But... The curriculum dispute stuff is really very difficult because we, and this kind of feeds into that professionalism aspect as well, how are we explaining to families, to the, the, the public, what is good for children? Now, what, what is that, what's actually good for children in an early childhood yeah, and setting? I would say that the problem is, is that the sector doesn't explain that. I think individual services do it well. But as a whole, I don't think services see it as their responsibility to explain to parents the science behind play. I don't think they ex explain to, to families, you know, why they don't do more of that academic sort of preparation. And mm. if they do do it, they do it as a response to challenge. So when uh, someone says hey, our children are going to school next term and they aren't yet using pens, then they kind of explain it in relation to that. But it's a bit of a defensive thing rather than from the first day that a family enters into a service, 
they've explained about play, about, you know, that like the real beauty of play being that it helps children to be independent thinkers across and creative thinkers and creative problem solvers across a range of things. Whereas if you teach a child to write, yes, they may be able to write before they go to school, but they won't have any of those other skills that are so necessary. So it comes back to this issue around content versus inquiry. So if all we're teaching is content, which actually happens a lot more in in primary years and high school years, although it shouldn't, um, then all we're doing is giving children information and they're obligated just to take it on and regurgitate it. Whereas if we work on inquiry and problem solving, then children will be able to problem solve and inquire for their whole lives. And something I found which states it beautifully, it was on a blog about push push down curriculum, which is experiences of the present moment must serve to inspire children to question, explore and wonder. And I thought, oh, how much better. beautiful. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? And, and certainly that has to be better than teaching them facts that they're supposed to then feed back to, to people and and demonstrate how very, very clever they are. And Why so, would you teach anybody facts when there's Google? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, but I think, you know, the parroting of, of in, intelligent information seems to be a popular thing, and I guess that's what the testing regime favours as well. But it, it's all, all those things too, Liam, where you're talking about the brain wiring and the neurological connections which aren't in place and I remember when my children were very very young and in school and people were really pushing the whole reading regime and that they had to move through all of the stages and I I attempted to explain it as though it was building blocks that needed to have those solid foundations um, because otherwise the ones on top would fall through the cracks and I think I might have converted a whole class of families about reading. You know, I think that that's one of the things that is key to this, Leanne. It's about parents' isolation. So whereas in the old days, you know, parents lived in communities and they'd see how other people bring up their children and be able to judge whether or not you know, their children were doing okay compared to their peers or if there was areas they needed to put more work in. And the children would benefit from having, you know, lots of interaction with different types of adults who did things in different ways. Now it's just one adult possibly in a home and maybe that child gets to go to early education or maybe they don't. But they don't have that input from other from other families so they don't really understand where their child is sitting and so because of that they're sitting ducks for the marketers that come and say your child needs to do this yeah but but i think that i i think they're not so isolated but what they what families do is market their children to each other so because there's this kind of urgency around testing and around them being super smart and so there's there's kind of like a marketing and, and maybe they're raising raising false expectations in others about what children will achieve. So I but maybe maybe they're marketing because they're so uncertain of their own parenting. I wonder if some yeah. of it is always kind of the 
the dark or a negative impact of some of the, the so the sort of global move in advocacy to the importance of the birth of five space internationally. We can discuss and argue how well that's been successful in Australia, but is it maybe that the advocates have been successful but with the wrong outcome? So people were going, oh, this birth of five is really important, which means I need to be doing more rote learning and more, uh, mm. you know, this kind of learning. So they've they've got the message but haven't understood the the actual context because. Um, one of the places you know we always have to look to in early edu- in early education advocacy is um, you know the sort of Swedish countries like Finland and Denmark. Um, they take it incredibly seriously, but it's not this sort of formal rote education. I don't think anyone in there is tested on anything until you know they're sort of um, aged eight or above. Mm, yeah, and and the, and it comes back to the communication with schools about not what schools want when the children come to them, but from an early childhood perspective, where children should best be at when they do come to them. I think that that there's got to be some sort of middle meeting ground. And some services do this beautifully. They set up amazing relationships with the schools and the schools have grown their knowledge around what early childhood education is and, and are the greatest um, advocates for it because they understand what good early childhood education is. So congratulations to those centres that do that because I've seen that done really, really well. Um, but it is when when early childhood services ask the school what they want uh, the children to know when they come to them, which is, you know, maybe not the right way around. Liam, I think you're touching on something there, but it's I think it's slightly different than what you've said. I think it's the policymakers have learnt that early education is important, and the ones that have actually put some money behind it are then going, well, you know, why it's important is because it allows you to do better in school, and how you measure how people do better in school is by you know, is by testing and by academic testing. This is just another so way of meeting the tests, yeah. Yeah, therefore, to justify that expenditure, they've got to, you know, people who, they've got to, children have got to do better at schools and parents pick up on that message and think, okay, well, I've got to prepare my child to do better at school. Well, the other big um Maybe the last point to touch on before we move on to our next topic. So the big in Australia, where this has probably been most uh, recently discussed and debated, um, was in Tasmania, where there was a big push from the Tasmanian government to lower the starting age for school, which was a really interesting debate and discussion. It was very, it was sort of uh, over. I think it's still over, going too. Yeah, I think it's still yeah. going. I think they've yeah. backed down a little bit, but they might be going in. But you know, in in a sense, in essence, they're saying. Well, the evidence says we need to do this earlier, so let's do it earlier. Whereas, the argument isn't quite that simple. We're not saying that the formal rote, sort of the formal sitting in classrooms and learning needs to start earlier. We actually have a good system in place for early childhood education. We just need to use that better. I mean, that that to me is a good example of yeah, the wrong lessons being drawn from from all that work in the early education space. And it, and it comes back to families want their children to do well, so who can argue with that? And early childhood educators want to be viewed um, as, you know, really strong, supportive people of family aspirations, and they want to be seen well by by schools. And so it just goes on and on. It, it, it creates 
And Lisa, we may have been guilty of using a NAPLAN reference in the past about how important <laughs> early childhood education. I remember we got absolutely thrashed for that. Um, and I think the part of that was, again, just trying to um, assist policymakers to see the value in early childhood education. So we're probably all guilty. We're all guilty. Yeah, but look, with, without a doubt, but I, I, I've got no problem with using one message to politicians and a different message <laughs> to parents. <laughs> yes. Parents yes. need the correct message. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I guess our recommendation would be families, Save your money for early childhood education, especially in New South Wales, because you've got to pay more for it anyway. <laughs> well, on that bit of advice, we might uh, look where we're keeping to time very well. I'm feeling very proud of us. We might move on to our next uh, topic, which kind of segues nicely from Leanne, what we were just talking about in terms of how educators would like to be to be viewed. Um, we've talked a lot in our first five episodes, um, I think, about educators and the early childhood profession in general. So we wanted to have a discussion in this episode uh, just sort of more generally on that topic. And we sort of turned to the professional identity, which is something I'm really interested in. I've written a little bit about it in my blog and have talked a bit about it, um, various things as well. I think it's one of the most crucial but undiscussed sort of elements of the sector um, so Liam, you'll you'll include that blog, won't you, in the um, in the the notes for this week, so people can read what you've said about that. Well, I hate promoting myself, Leanne, and now that you've mentioned That's it, I okay. I'll have you to. have to. You have to, yeah. Um, so yeah, well, I guess we wanted to have a bit of a general discussion. Uh, we know we've sort of talked about the, the the political climate and context for early childhood professionals, you know, in, in earlier episodes. So I want to steer us away from that as much as possible. Just. Uh, I guess, you know, and Lisa, maybe I'll start with you. And again, I think that sort of semi-external perspective is really valuable for, for those of us who work directly in the sector day in, day out. But I've always sort of seen the how educators view themselves as professionals is as close to, um, separate to better funding, is as close to a bit of a magic bullet to changing how well the sector can work for children that we have you know, I know, and you sort of say you're not in the sector, but I think you're an honorary member of the sector. You spend a lot of time with oh, educators. thank you. Yeah, well, you're, you're more than welcome, Lisa. You spend a lot of time with educators. You spend a lot of time with leaders as well. What do you think are the, you know, if you had to pick one or two um, big, you know, challenges for, in terms of that, how educators view themselves as professionals, so separate to what we think about society, thinking about the educator role. What are the big issues just internally, either individually or in teams for people about how they view themselves? Look, I suppose the one that always strikes me is that I don't believe educators and I don't believe that early childhood teachers in particular see the depth of their knowledge about early childhood and see the privileged position that that puts them in to speak up about children and what children need. You guys are the ones that can articulate this. You guys are the ones that um, spend all your working days with children and yet you're, there's something about professionals in this sector and I think it comes from externally from the status and standing of teachers and early childhood professionals being so bad that you're rarely prepared to take that space to claim it and say, look, we're experts and this is what children need. I also think that 
there's a lot of um, anti-professionalism in the sector. So I especially noticed this with early childhood teachers that they say, oh, we work as a team here. And my answer to that is always, mm, yeah, but one of you went to university for four years and got a degree and you have learnt to think, hopefully, if your degree was good, in a slightly different way than someone that's done competency-based um, training in an RTO. But there's a real anti-elitism within the profession that, you know, d denies that some people have higher qualifications. Yeah, and Lisa, I, I think that's interesting because I remember the development of this and it was a very, very long time ago. Um, and I, I recall in my first role as an early childhood teacher, I had... Can you remember that far back? Yes, I can. I, I had an assistant who prepared the paint and, you know, did, did those, all of the peripheral things um, so that I could get on with the business of teaching. And I went in there with all the freshness of a new early childhood teacher and went, oh, my goodness, I, you have to be included in this and I want you to do some of the group times. And she went, no, thank you very much. I've done this for 30 years. I'm very happy and you're the teacher and I'm not paid enough. And it was <laughs> it, it was this, you know, it, for me it was like, oh, my goodness. And, and then, of course, it really did evolve um, significantly over the 80s where... The, I guess it was the expansion of long daycare as well, where people were doing more work that was exact, that was kind of spread over the day. And I don't know whether I'm portraying it in a, a good or bad way, but it, it did sort of promote this idea that everybody should be doing exactly the same work all the time. So we maybe, I don't know whether we've done ourselves a favour or not with that. This will be a contentious one, of course. Look, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it will be, but I, you know, how many times do you go into a service and not know who are the teachers and who are the educators? And I, you know, like yeah. people say, well, why should you? You know, like we all do the same work. Mm, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, like there's very few professions where, like, you know, let's take, you know, nursing or or medicine, you know, you always understand the hierarchy in those professions and you understand that you're going to get a different answer if you ask a question from someone at the top of that spectrum than someone, you know, not so high. So so what would what would both of you consider to be perhaps the top three things that would differentiate a um you know differentiate people in different roles what would you identify as those things oh a list um, um well it's a professionalism listicle it's right? a profession yeah it's right but I, yeah it's right you won't believe what happens next um <laughs> it's interesting I'd, I, I, I'd, yeah. I'd say analytical thought would be up there at the top and understanding of the research behind what you're doing Mm -hmm. So that I would expect a teacher to be able to um, to explain to a parent the science behind what they're doing and to analyse that in terms of, you know, what's happening um, in, you know, in various different sorts of service types and in different parts of the world, etc. Well, I'm terrible at listing things, Leanne, but I might just add to the controversy by saying 
a couple of things. So I've worked in early childhood for a long time and I'm an early childhood teacher myself. I, um, there is a significant and visible and very clear difference between early childhood teachers who have uh, you know, gone straight into an early childhood degree and then started working in a centre than those who have completed the TAFE qualifications first and then gone on to do the early childhood teaching degree, usually while they're working as well. There are significant differences in their practice and there are significant differences in their understanding and resilience in working in those very complicated, chaotic, um, often spaces with young children. And unfortunately, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've seen this time and time again, the ones who sort of come in directly into centres, having got that degree, usually don't stay very long because they they struggle, they have the they have the intellectual capacity, but what the, the degree doesn't prepare them for is the actual nuts and bolts of being in a centre, you know, with upwards of, you know, 60, 70, 80 young children a day. And, and I think your thoughts are backed by research there, Liam, the, the stuff about um, people leaving the sector, the um, research that's been that's come out of Queensland, Dr Sue Irvine, shows exactly that. People are leaving leaving the sector. Um, and so is a question around how people are prepared to work in the sector and how they actually are, uh, you know, working through their qualifications. I mean, maybe there's some really good questions around how that happens in in uh, universities or maybe they just come into the sector fresh from their degree and then get absolutely shocked at how bad the wages and conditions are (laughs) and can't stick it out oh Oh, well yes we've mentioned that before haven't we the pay and and i mean i guess there's there's some of these things around the um teacher accreditation that's happening around australia in various states and new south wales is is one that's getting on board with teacher accreditation. I know there's varying opinions about this and people are feeling, you know, anywhere between resentful and overjoyed about teacher accreditation. But in terms of pay, I think that those are good steps and and good steps towards uh, better pay but also the the greater respect and the professionalism that that actually um, is marking you know, many, many professions and needs to happen in the early childhood sector. I think one of the things for me is separate to, you know, the, we can't ignore the big the big picture stuff, which is the wages conditions. But for the purpose of the dis, this discussion, you know, I want to keep it a little bit separate just to that internal sense of, you know, value of their own role. I do think there's a huge problem and I hate to open up this can of quagmire of horrible worms, but if you look at, you know, some of the online Facebook groups, you know, the yeah, I, I, I haven't been on them in years because they, they terrify me, but, the, you know, the EYLF NQS ideas group or something, mm. and there's a few of them. The It is, I mean, there's no other way to say it, but it is, there are some horrible, terrible views on people's work there. And we, I do worry that there's this undercurrent of the sector, which, you know, to put it diplomatically and nicely, I think people just don't, understand how important their role is they may be in the sector for the wrong reasons as well um you know I, I, as i sort of said in a previous podcast i interview a lot of a lot of uh, people coming in you know looking for roles in early childhood centers and you know the amount of times i hear i just love children and i said well that's not really good enough this isn't you know about you know loving and caring for children this should be about your ability to work to support the learning and well-being of children is 
I mean, we we sort of discussed a lot of more detail. Is is a lot of it just to symbolise? Do people take their job seriously? Mm, yeah, well, well I, it, Liam, I think a lot of people take their job really, really seriously. I have a different problem with some of the Facebook groups <laughs> than you, which is about the policing of practices that mm. happens on yeah. those groups, so that, um, like. You know, there's whole Facebook groups set up to laugh at other people's practices. And some, you know, I enjoy reading some of those things as much as everyone else because some practices are so hideous that, you know, you can do nothing but laugh, otherwise you'd cry. But I think that there's a lot of, um, what's it called, norming and storming? Is that what the corporates call it? Where... (laughs) People are saying, um, you can't do this. And so I often see people, I'll often follow a thread quite a way through to see what's happening. And I realise that the person that posted it has a genuine inquiry because they've never come across something. But by the end of it, they have been so shamed for not knowing that. It's a thing. There's a significant difference. Yeah. Yeah, there's a significant difference between... And um, if I wasn't clear in the previous sentence, there's a significant difference between when I say the sort of horrible stuff, I mean just deliberately provocative and I don't care if everyone hates it, I'm going to do it. And they're deliberately between people who are genuinely trying new things, trying different things. Yes, they may not be fitting into progressive contemporary practice, but they are they are willing to learn, they are willing to engage on that discussion. But, I, but part of me worries about... Um, the people not taking it seriously is because they don't understand how serious it is. I'm not sure how good we are as it was the same discussion with families. Are we are we good at spooking why this is really important that it's not about you know, for me the professionalism isn't about necessarily the activities or experiences you're planning, but how you know, how how do you respect children, how do you value children, how do you uphold their rights, how do you interact and engage with children on a day to day basis? That's the stuff I look for in terms of professional identity for the educators. I work with it's not necessarily the amazing um, you know thing they planned with trucks and dinosaurs it's more wow that the conversation I just saw that educator had with that child really valued that child's point of view and particularly for children experiencing you know different Liam I think you're saying think you're saying that relationships are really important heaven forbid well but it is but <laughs> but but I think but if we looked at a lot of the stuff coming out of the sector whether it's you know we're sort of picking on Facebook but even in you know, even in other sort of forums and sector groups, I don't know if we we spend far more time worrying about documentation than about relationships with children. Yeah, and it, and that that whole relationship um, aspect is your pedagogical knowledge. That's really you know that's the significant component of knowledge that you possess about children, about practice, um, and significantly the marker or biggest characteristic of professional of a profession is acting autonomously and so that's that's actually the, apparently the big key to a profession is acting autonomously and you've got to have all of those things in your toolkit before you can act autonomously and also no fragmentation which is interesting so we've, we've talked a lot about fragmentation and that's another marker of, of um, a profession is no fragmentation in a profession. What? I don't understand what fragmentation means. Well, I think that you can have opposing views but you can't have people falling away um, and and not agreeing ever 
on practice and pedagogy. And I think probably this is as well some of the, mm-hmm. the crossover between professional identity and leadership. As I was thinking of this topic this morning, I was thinking back to my you know, first experience in an early childhood centre and I was an appalling hire. I should never have been hired. I, did, I was doing a, the first year of a media degree. I thought it was childcare. I thought it was basically babysitting. I liked children and done some actual babysitting and thought, oh, this will be some good money, you know, while I, you know, cavort around at university and waste my time on a media degree. Thank heavens I didn't go with that. But media is not going so well right now. But the what what could have happened was that I started work and and sort of continued on that path, didn't didn't learn anything. But what did happen, incredibly fortunately, is I somehow lucked into a centre where they just did not accept that I was very, very clearly told, you will take this job seriously, you will not do that, you will do this, and was, for want of a better word, just um, forced to understand, you know, the work and do it in a proper way. But what I worry sometimes oh, about in terms that of... that director of pay rise, oh, I'd say. But they, they, imagine the entire team having to put up with 18-year-old Liam. God, putting up with me now is hard enough back then. God, they, they, yeah, they... I actually reckon give that director. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I, I worry if that's not the and I might speak particularly from the ACT context here, that that is far less likely to happen because the, you know, the, the more experienced educators and teachers and directors are leaving the sector. They're being replaced by younger and less experienced educators and this is again not to you know there are fantastic young educators coming into the sector but we do need to also think about you know the the that sort of you know rock solid fount of you know wisdom and experience which says no you will do this and I don't particularly care whether you like it or not I think as a sector we're actually a bit too worried about everyone's feelings right now and you know how is everyone feeling about you know what they're doing whereas we probably just need people to go no, you will you will speak to children this way. This is how we do it at the centre. If you don't like it, you need to find another place to work. Mm. Yes, being strong, being yeah. professional. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, and, and removing all 18-year-old Liam from the service. <laughs> <laughs> that is a must. But, yeah, I think, you know, it's that thing, you know, if you look at, you know, you know doctors and nurses and pilots, there are specific ways to do what we do. We know what is is good and we know what's bad if we tolerate bad practice we're allowing that unprofessionalism to 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 fester but if we challenge it and we say no this is how we're going to do it and it's really important we do it this way and here's why and it's about at the end of the day you know supporting children's learning and well-being that is the stuff i think where the profession starts to build around that and and people value what they do yes yeah rise up early childhood leadership (laughs) Liam, again, just looking at this from a slightly external perspective, one of the things that strikes me when you're talking about, you know, like surgeons and pilots, et cetera, et cetera, is there wouldn't be as much uncertainty about how you do something. They wouldn't be sitting around having the conversations about documentation that this sector has. No, but I think that... Again, it's hard when you sort of got, you know, um, and I've sort of commented in some of our conversations, I'm far better at writing as I can redraft myself five times when I'm trying to just talk off the top of my head and never goes so well. But I also think sometimes like, we get distracted by the wrong conversation. So we're too worried about the stuff that is malleable and it is changeable. And yes, that's all there and 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 it should be because, you know, a centre 
you know, um, in the you know in Cape in you know Cape York is going to be different than a centre here in you know Metro Canberra. What to me, there are some fundamentals to the sector that should be consistent everywhere, which is you know all around that engagement with children's space that we should all, all interactions with children should be respectful. We should be role modelling you know, positive communication and uh, and sort of behaviour with children. And there are some of the, those fundamentals around that that actually need to be sector-wide and need to be, you know, completely or, you know, militantly, um, you know, focused on and, and led by the are leaders in the sector. Are spoken about enough then? Well, probably not. We're going to start it with this podcast, so Lisa will be out here tonight. But no, I, I, I don't think it is. I think we get distracted. It's the chasing butterfly stuff. We get distracted by... Reggio-inspired, you know, um, practices when there's actually just some fundamental things we need to get right and they need to be just completely militantly enforced by everyone in the sector. And, and that's that, that fragmentation thing, Lisa, that I was mentioning is, you know, if we're, if we're disputing curriculum all, all the time and approach, like everything is up for um, discussion and dispute and and people move off in a thousand different directions on children's learning and and uh, and curriculum. Then that's where that fragmentation is, and that's where the professionalism is undermined. Mm. Well, I think yeah, educators and professionalism and freshman identity is a topic we will be returning to time and again. Uh, it is, you know, in terms of you know our. our our audience for this podcast are primarily people working in the sector and we've also had some great feedback from educators working directly with children. We want to continue this discussion. We might move on to our recommendations for the week uh, today. So if do you want to kick us off, Lisa? Okay, I'll do it very quickly. I'm not going to go into it in detail. But I want people to have a look at um, G8 Education's um, uh, investor presentation that they did in February um, this year on their results from 2015. Why G8? Why do I think it's important that people look at this? Um, G8 is our biggest, at the moment, corporate provider of childcare in Australia. It now owns... Um, Oh, I've got the key figures, of course, as I, I um, this need number to. This number of centres, Lisa? Yeah. About 450, I think, at the moment. Yes, 450 centres, and that's a hell of a lot of places. I think we're reaching a stage where, you know, an alarmingly, they're not as big as Good Start, but they're getting close. Um, an alarmingly large number of our childcare places are once again in the hands of a corporate provider. One of the things that I particularly want people to look at um, when they look at this is the amount of assets that the company has, which I won't go into the figures, but the proportion of those assets that are goodwill. Right? So goodwill is, you know, um, like the non-tangible thing that you can presumably sell if you sell a, 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 a childcare service or a childcare business. And it's getting very high as a proportion of their assets. And this was one of the things that we saw happen with ABC earning, that Goodwill kept going up and actual assets remained stable or was dropping. So I just think it's 
fascinating reading for everyone. Thanks, Lisa. We will obviously include a link along with all the other recommendations and extra discussion points for today as well. Leanne, what's your, uh, what are you directing people to this week? Um, one one is from The Atlantic. Actually, I think it was from a couple of weeks ago. And uh, it's Hillary Clinton answers 10 questions on early education. I think it's interesting to see how someone's talking um, about early education when they're looking to be elected. But she's got a pretty good track record in, in this stuff. She still gives plenty of political speak. But I think my favourite quote is that uh, she says, I'll fight every single day to make America the best place in the world to raise a family. So that Aww. is a great, yeah, <laughs> great foundation for an article. And she understands uh, early childhood education and the difference that it can make. So I just found it very refreshing that it was a um, political figure who really understood early childhood education, even if she was hedging a bets on how much they were going to invest in the future. And it was interesting that it came up as one of the first topics in their debate today too. Mm, mm, yeah. Oh, we didn't have time to talk about the debate and we'll be here for another <laughs> few hours, but wasn't that fun. Um, my one's a bit closer to home. We've obviously just had the very, very quick turnaround for uh, the submissions to the Senate inquiry, to the Jobs for Families legislation and sort of related um, uh, regulations that were going along with that. I, they're, they're, all the submissions are, you know, sort of worth reading. There's some, there's some good ones there. I would particularly draw people's attention. And mine's the first submission. I did notice that, Lisa. That's um, <laughs> that's some good nerd cred you've developed there. But um, the I would direct people to Snake's submission. So the Secretariat for National Aboriginal Indigenous Children's Council. Um, they have been, you know, relentless and fierce with their advocacy for Indigenous children. Um, with this package over the last uh, year um, that continues with this uh, submission. Um, I just think it's, you know, again, for the sector, the Jobs for Families package is going to have the worst impact on um, Indigenous children around the country with the potential closure of the BBF, the, sorry, the budget-based funded services. And I think we all need to, you know, get our sort of shoulder behind Snake and helping them out. And what we do that is we're reading their submission and sort of getting the facts on that stuff. So we'll include... Um, the links to all our recommendations in the show notes. Lynn, I've seen their submission online through tweets that they've done, but their submission still isn't up on the um, inquiry website. Oh, no. Well, I'm going to link to the media release that they sent to. So maybe they just put out a media release rather than the submission, but I'll, I'll double-check that before putting it out. But um, I think one of the issues with the, with the most recent inquiry from last week is that it's essentially the same as the one before so I think a lot of people are just putting up previous submissions but um, again really important that people sort of continue to think about that. Um, we will begin to wrap up we'd just like to as usual um, thank uh, all our supporters and raters and reviewers particularly on iTunes as I say every week it is really uh, helpful and, and we really appreciate it it helps um, other you know, early childhood professionals find the podcast if you give us a rating and particularly a written review in the iTunes store. So we really appreciate that. Uh, we've had two reviews from the last week. So I'd like to say a big thanks to Melinda Gambley and Janet Robertson, who uh, both have, give, have left lovely reviews. So Janet particularly is saying she's uh, listening to us while uh, cleaning the house on a Saturday morning and she's referred to us as three sane early childhood folks. So 
Um, you know, that's. <laughs> I don't know if I can get called sane. So that's... let's not tell her. <laughs> she doesn't know us that well. And Lisa, you get she says you, she Melinda who gave us the other review was very impressed with your very impassioned rant about New South Wales funding, and having been subjected to many of your impassioned rants about that particular topic, I'd agree it was a good one last week. So yeah. thank you, Melinda and Janet. We really appreciate it. Um, that's it for the show. We really appreciate everyone listening to us. You can find the show on Twitter, at Early EDU Show. Please feel free to chuck us some feedback, ask us any questions. Um, you can find me in person on Twitter, at Liam McNicholas. And I'm at Lisa J. Bryant. And I'm Leanne M. Gibbs 3, although I must say I'm very inactive at the moment, so I must, uh, <laughs> must up my game a bit. That's all right. We'll we'll give you a break for the last little while, but we'll we'll get you we'll get you back on there. But yeah, thanks everyone. It's been great to be with you again for another week. And like I said, next week, no regular show, but hopefully we'll have some updates from our reporter on the ground, Lisa Bright at the ECA conference. So until the next time we get together, it's bye from me. And me. And me. <laughs> <laughs>